0: Zen at the sharp end. Welcome to the podcast about how to turn difficult people and relationships into your best teachers. I'm Mark Westmiket, a Zen Buddhist teacher, mindfulness teacher and ex-professional astronomer. This is a podcast to go along with my book, Zen and the Art of Dealing with Difficult People. In each episode, we'll be exploring different varieties of people, relationships and situations that we find irritating, difficult or painful. Together with a number of Zen friends, I'll be discussing how the practices of Buddhism and mindfulness can help us see our difficult people as troublesome Buddhas, our greatest teachers. This podcast is sponsored by Zen Minded. If you get a chance, check them out at www.zenminded.uk you'll find a curated selection of Japanese homeware and incense, a perfect match to your meditation practice. We're also sponsored by BetterHelp. BetterHelp offers convenient and affordable therapy online. In my opinion, meditation and psychotherapy both offer valuable avenues for exploring our suffering, habits and stark areas. A while back, I spent three and a half years meeting twice a week with a psychotherapist when things had become acute, and it felt like the help he gave me was really transformational, especially when supported by my regular meditation practice. If you're interested, they've extended an offer of 10 percent off your first month of therapy at betterhelpcom Zen at the sharp end. That's com/slash Zen at the sharp End In this podcast, I'm interviewing Matt who's asked that I only use his first name to preserve his anonymity. Matt has high-functioning autism, and in this interview he explores his unique perspective on the intricate world of human interactions, where everyone he meets is essentially a troublesome Buddha. In a fascinating discussion of the differences in social skills and awareness capabilities between neurotypical people and his own experience, He highlights how much his meditation practice has been of benefit. First he's come to face his psychological material, or stuff, on a deep level and learned to accept himself just as he is. Secondly, he's found difficult situations have got easier as a kind of side effect of practice. Unlike many people who find cultivating present moment body awareness and self-reflection helpful, this he finds just doesn't work for him. And instead, he finds the deeply grooved sense of equanimity and calm that come from his practice has been of the most help when going into difficult situations, putting him in the right place. Now, as a meditation teacher, he finds deep nourishment from moments of direct, deep connection with the students. Like, as the Zen saying goes, one arrow meeting another mid-flight. Hello, Matt, and uh, welcome to our podcast Zen at the Sharp End. Uh, but it's great to have you here uh, uh today yeah thanks it's a pleasure to be here so perhaps we could start off just by talking a little bit about your background so um could you say a little bit of how you got into meditation what's your background and and um where, where how have you got to where you are today
1: sure yeah so I've been interested in this stuff since I was a kid, really. You know, as, as a kid, I was very interested in martial arts, and a lot of the Japanese martial arts books especially, they'll have a short, obscure little chapter at the end that has something to do with meditation, and I had no idea what any of it was about, but I came away with the impression that it was very important, and I should definitely check it out at some point. <laughs> and then a couple of decades of life happened, and then I remembered, oh yeah, that meditation thing, I should, I should check that out, I should spend some time with that. So I started trying to practice, um, did a few bits and bobs. I went on a Zen retreat with the Western Chan Fellowship. Uh, They're one of the the Chinese Zen organizations in the UK. Um, Learned to practice there, which was called silent illumination. It's a just sitting practice. It's the same kind of thing as the unborn practice that we do in Zen ways. Didn't really make any sense to me. Yeah, you know, They told you how to sit, and so I was sitting, and then I was waiting for the instructions, and, and then the silence stretched out. I, I, <laughs> yeah. don't, I don't really get what's going on here. It's, it's super cool to be on a Zen retreat, but I have no idea what's going on, and, and nothing's happening. And, uh, mm. uh, so <laughs> the whole thing sort of turned into a bit of an exercise in uh, enduring the discomfort of sitting yeah. still for prolonged periods of time.
0: That, that was in the UK, yeah? Yeah, that's
1: right, yeah. yeah. A uh, couple of years after that, couple of years of sort of bashing my head against this Zen brick wall, uh, I thought I'd try something a bit different. So I went on a, a jhana retreat with a teacher called Lee Brazington jhana uh, is a style of practice that involves concentrating the mind, focusing and developing kind of one-pointed concentration, which can lead to these altered states of consciousness. And that retreat was, was a complete game-changer for me. The, the practice really opened up for me on that retreat, both concentration-wise and insight-wise. Uh, for the next few years, I was convinced, yeah, forget about that Zen stuff. This This is the one true way. Mm-hmm. This is the good stuff. Mm-hmm. And then after a few years of practicing in that style, On another retreat, a month long retreat, suddenly one evening things kind of flipped around and all of a sudden I understood how to just sit. Mm. And that's actually been the main direction of my practice since then. So I've really kind of come full circle, come back to the Zen way of doing things. Mm. Um, I I still absolutely love the jhana practice, it's been so helpful for me and it's something that I actually teach myself now. But my that the sort of bulk of my own practice is now back in that that Zen direction again.
0: Mm-hmm. So there's something there around the instruction just to sit, just just sit, and don't do anything. It's perhaps for someone who's just starting, like completely, there's it's too little. I mean, how do I know what what? Why do I do? But don't do anything. What? Yeah, but what? How do I do that? <laughs> But then once we've got a bit of instruction and a bit of understanding with our process, then it's like, ah, I understand now how to just sit. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And, you know, I- I've been a-, a
1: chronic achiever, doer type of person. And so you, know, you give me a set of instructions, I will follow your set of instructions to the letter. You give me no instructions at all. And I'm, I'm just sort of sitting here waiting for input. Yeah, you know? like, I- <laughs>
0: Exactly. Yeah. 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 Mm. So, so what's the, just in a couple of sentences, how do you practice jhana meditation? Yeah, so the, the basic
1: idea is that you pick some object to focus, so the breathing or the sensation of loving kindness or a candle flame or whatever you like. You rest your attention on the object and anytime the mind wanders, you come back to the object And if you do that long enough and consistently enough, then you find that the distractions that have been pulling you off in all directions start to quieten down and fall into the background. And this is what we call access concentration. This is where the mind's really starting to get stable. And then having arrived there, you then find some kind of pleasant sensation in your experience. That might be a pleasant feeling in the body. If you're working with loving kindness, then loving kindness is pretty pleasant to begin with. You essentially enjoy the pleasantness of the pleasant sensation. And over time, that builds and it takes you into this this uh, the first jhana, which is characterized by bliss and joy and various things. And mm-hmm. then there's subsequent instructions to move through the the ones that come after that. But that's the basic gist of it.
0: Mm, so kind of like um, sinking into a deeper sense of concentration, and presence takes us into a, a sense of feeling great, feeling kind of like, I mean, it, I guess it, from my experience, it's not a sort of like jump up and joy. It's a kind of real deep contentment. Is that right?
1: Well, it depends. Um, the The show up differently for different people, mm. and uh, certainly for me, the the first couple were just super strong when I hit them. So the first one, the primary experience, is a sort of bodily, energetic feeling. The second one is characterized by emotional joy, typically, but for some people, it's more kind of happiness. And then the third one is getting more into that quiet sense of contentment, mm. and the fourth one is a deep sense of peace, deep equanimity. Hmm. And um, different people have different affinities for different ones. Some people will skip the first couple and go straight in at number three, that kind of thing. So there's a process of um, learning how each person experiences the genres for themselves, how to find their way in and navigate around and that sort of thing. Mm. the upshot of all of it is that it leaves you with a mind which is very much more concentrated than before you started so it's much calmer quieter and when you then turn it to an insight practice of some sort be that you know a koan or uh doing a body scan or whatever it might be the mind is significantly sharper than it was beforehand Mm. and that means that the practice that follows is much more productive Mm.
0: Mm. so along that journey um At what point do you think bringing it into daily life and applying it to like our relationships and difficult people, at what point did that arise?
1: Yeah, that's that's an interesting one. Uh, I I was perhaps a bit of a late bloomer in terms of um, getting into the interpersonal side of the practice. Uh, I was drawn to it because, you know, meditation is something that I can do on my own without really needing anyone else around and without Mm. having to interact with other people. And I I didn't have a lot of psychological material come up when I first started practice. So I've known people who sort of hit that psychological material pretty much from day one and have Mm. to slog through it for quite a while before anything else happens. Mm. I just kind of sailed through that and I thought, oh, actually, you know, my life's been pretty good. Maybe I just don't have any psychological baggage. And then a few years ago, uh, it's like, oh, oh, ah, right. I've now sort of dug far enough down. Here it is. Here it is. Um, So... Mm. Yeah, I I certainly got to a point where I would go on a retreat and I'd have a really nice experience on the retreat. And then I would come back from the retreat and it would all just disintegrate on first contact with other human beings. Mm. Uh, Dealing with other people just immediately (laughs) shattered whatever piece I'd built up on the retreat. And that was a bit of a problem, actually, because I started to think, is this practice actually really working? You know, Is it is it essentially a kind of fancy holiday where I just go off into the woods for 10 days and get nice and quiet because it doesn't seem to be transferring over. So again, the, the last maybe, I don't know, seven, eight years, something like that, I've been looking much more at, all right, how does this actually translate in practice?
0: Mm, mm. So the, <laughs> it reminds me of the story of the Buddha. You know, he started off... Leaving the palace and going off into the wilderness and finding a meditation teacher teacher taught him very deep concentration practices, but he was like, But yeah, but what about this suffering thing i can mm. I can reach this place where I feel great, and then I walk out into the forest again and it's gone it's gone and so he 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 left the group and thought well this this can't be quite what it is mm. uh, it sounds like like a kind of that similar path there mm. Well nobody's ever compared me to the Buddha before but i'll I'll take it <laughs> <laughs> but but I think there's there's a kind of lesson that we learn that um that yeah we can develop these wonderful concentrations, but it is kind of like a holiday, you know like it's not real life, and it's somewhere else where we can go to and enjoy and and maybe that gives us a sense of peace and um i don't know energy or 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 kind of like letting go that that helps us as we come back into normal life. But it's not directly applying this, you know, to, to dealing with the stuff that comes up with relationships and people like that. And then once we wake up and realize, actually, there's more, there's more here. Then this is a major turning point. I mean, it sounds to me. I get where you're coming
1: from. I wouldn't completely agree with that. Okay. Because actually one of the things that can come out of a concentration practice is a, a really clear examination of, of our personal stuff and the things that actually hinder us in interpersonal relationships. So that stuff didn't come up for me for the first few years. But now actually the most reliable trigger for whatever my next psychological issue to work on is to go on a journal retreat. I see. Because uh-huh. it, the impression I have at least is, that we spend a lot of time and effort just kind of squashing all of that stuff down so we don't have to deal with it yeah i've got some some issues some difficulty with dealing with people but if i just don't think about it then it's fine right it's not really Mm -hmm. a problem and then in order to get into these deeper states of concentration the mind really has to relax and soften and settle and as that happens the energy that was going into keeping all that stuff pushed down starts to relax and so the stuff starts to come up Mm. so actually it's a very common experience for people who go on a jhana retreat that actually they spend nearly the whole time dealing with psychological stuff that's coming up Ah. because in their In the rest of life and in the rest of their practice, there's just not enough space. There's not enough softness in the mind for it to start to come up. So I've actually found it quite helpful. I think in my case, it was more just that the stuff was sufficiently far down (laughs) that it took a while to make its way all the way up to the surface. Um, and, and, you know, now I find that, uh, whether I'm on a Zen retreat or a genre retreat, that kind of stuff will very often come up, uh, mm. pretty much independently of how I'm practicing, but getting the mind concentrated is definitely a powerful way, both for me and for other people to actually get that stuff to come up far enough that we can actually see it consciously. Mm. Mm. And then what? Well, that, that's, that's, that's another good question, isn't it? Um, and I've I've tried a few different things. Um the the best approach I found really is allowing whatever's coming up to be as fully seen, felt, and experienced as it can be. And I haven't always taken this approach um I, I'll, I'll trace it back i think to a retreat i did in 2018 possibly 17 or 18 one of those uh, a, a friend of mine at work had uh, recently unexpectedly died just completely out of the blue he was 30 something he was an athlete you couldn't have met a fitter person mm. uh, he'd had some heart problems he'd had some surgery and then he got a virus and and that was a game over for him. But it was all very sudden. And I, due to a scheduling thing that had happened many months earlier, I basically went straight from his funeral onto a 10 day silent retreat, which I don't know that I would recommend, actually, mm-hmm. um, because. On a silent retreat, there's really no escape from whatever's coming up. There's there's nothing to distract. You know, the most interesting thing that happens all day is the meal times, and you only get three of those. Apart from that, there's just there's just no way out. And I had quite a lot of grief and various other things swirling around at the time. There was just no escape from it. So I tried every trick in my book. You know, I tried. They sometimes say, "Oh, you know, if you." having difficult thoughts coming up, bring loving kindness to it. And so I tried that and I tried various things, various approaches. The issue was that this wasn't really a conscious thing, but basically what I was trying to do was to meditate the stuff away, to Mm. just make it not be there so I didn't have to deal with it. And after three or four days of that, I reached the end of my rope and just completely gave up and said, yeah, you know what, nothing's working. I'm just going to have to sit here and (laughs) feel miserable, basically. And that was the point when things started to shift. And whenever I tell the story, I have to caveat it by saying this is not a secret technique to make your grief and pain go away. Yeah, you just say, okay. oh, I'm just going to stop doing anything because that'll make it go away. No, it was it was when I stopped trying to make it go away that yeah. ironically it actually started to go away. Yeah. And so that's been my main approach ever since. It's really just to sit there and be as open as I can and let myself feel the thing that I don't want to feel and a lot of this stuff is it's it's pretty awful but it's not that bad you know my head doesn't fall off at the end of the day it's if i'm in a sufficiently supportive environment if there's a teacher i can talk to if things are getting a bit too much then really just letting it come has been quite effective at just sort of letting all the the clenched
0: things unclench i guess letting things work their way out of the system yeah it's one of those ironies of meditation practice isn't it that as soon as we get into the mindset of wanting to make something happen, so bringing something towards us or pushing something away, then actually it it moves us towards a, a state of suffering, essentially, yeah. where we're wanting something to be different. But as soon as we let things be the way they are, things will change. Yeah. <laughs> and things will unclench and release. But it's just, it well, we have to come to that first step of actually being willing to allow things to be seen as they are. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, actually, similarly, you know, I had, I had a moment, um, just before the pandemic, my mum died, um, in October and, um, that was the beginning of October. And then the middle of November, I also went on a silent retreat mm. uh, five days. And, um, that I, I also found was, was, you know, hard, <laughs> mm. um, yeah lots and lots of emotions and and but actually i feel like at the end of that retreat i had actually jump-started my grief process yeah. and i felt like i i got through a lot of stuff and really processed i I was in a better shape you know for going going onwards so mm. um um it's good it's bad <laughs> it's difficult as you know whatever it is what it is yeah yeah it's intense but helpful i think Mm-hmm. Mm, mm. Okay, so you said you kind of uh, took a while to get to the point where you were bringing more of the daily life stuff into your practice and letting it influence. So in terms of like, I don't know, do you have any particular difficult relationships over the years that have arisen and become really important learning points for you?
1: Yeah, it's interesting. Um, As the practice has gone on and I've in some ways dealt with the the larger sources of suffering basically as the practice goes on you you start finding ways to deal with things you start finding ways to stop hitting yourself in the face quite as much as before mm. and as Two interesting things happen there. One is that as you suffer less, you notice more when you do suffer because yep. there's now a bit more space around it. And the other thing is that as certainly I found that as I suffer less personally, I notice much more now the people around me who are continuing to suffer in ways that I used to and now don't. That was mm. one of the things that that drew me towards teaching actually was the idea that, you know what, I found something that's been really super helpful for me here. And there's quite a lot of people who I think would benefit from it as well. So that got me interested in um, trying to work a bit more with people. And um, (laughs) that has been a bit of a challenge because, (laughs) um, long story short, uh, I found out in about 2015 that I have um, high-functioning autism, what used to be called Asperger's syndrome. And it's... Social interactions are typically not a thing that comes easily to people on the autism spectrum. And so especially as I've moved into both trying to teach meditation and into sort of leadership and mentoring positions at work, there's obviously more and more of that having to relate to people, having to figure out why am I not clicking with this person? What's going on in this relationship? That conversation was just utterly horrendous. What on earth happened there? All Mm -hmm. that kind of stuff. So it really... It's really sort of put a spotlight on a lot of that, I guess. Um, And there's there's a few aspects, I guess, which I might just talk through if that's okay. There's a few things that are sort of particular to uh, at least my flavor of autism. I guess caveat up front that the cliche in the autism world is that when you know one person with autism, you know one person with autism. It's a really varied condition that that, um, displays itself very differently from person to person. So a lot of autistic people have a lot of things in common but not all autistic people are precisely like me and so the things i'm saying you can't you know, people who are listening shouldn't just sort of I immediately realize. start treating all autistic people the way i would like to be treated you know, that yeah that'd be lovely yeah. for me but it may be different for others yeah but yeah so so for me some of the key things that make people really hard and, and you know on, on the theme of troublesome buddhas in a sense, almost everyone I meet is a troublesome Buddha on some level because of some of these difficulties. So the first thing is a a, a lack of what's called social intuition. And because I don't have it, I can only really guess what this might be like. But my understanding is that neurotypical people have a kind of instinctual intuitive sense of what's going on with other people. You can read each other without really having to try very hard or, or put a lot of effort into it. And that's really not the case for um, autistic people. Some autistic people just can't do it at all. And then you'll get people who it's very hard to have a conversation with because they'll be completely unresponsive to social cues. You know, they've got no idea when they're boring the pants off the person they're talking Mm. to, all that kind of stuff. The, The other variant you find is people who've actually learnt that there are these social behaviors that you're supposed to supposed to display, supposed to participate in. There are signs that other people are giving off that you're supposed to read. And you can learn to read those, but in a sort of deliberate cognitive way. Mm. So by watching somebody very carefully and observing body language and facial expressions and tone of voice and things like that, I've sort of learned a repertoire for reading people and dealing with them. There's a bit of a calibration period when I meet a new person. So typically for the first a few hours, really, that I'm meeting a new person. I won't really say very much to them because I don't know how to interact with them yet. Mm -hmm. But once I've kind of got a bead for, oh, this is the kind of person they are, this is the kind of way they speak, these are the kinds of signs they give off, then I'll be able to interact a bit better. The catch is that it's quite a lot of work. And it pretty much occupies my full brain to do it. So I can't do that and anything else at the same time. That means it's very tiring. So I don't have a lot of uh, social interaction in the tank before I have to go and uh, and recharge. Uh, But also, I just can't really do anything else at the same time. So I can't kind of work and talk to someone. If somebody wants to talk to me, I pretty much have to down tools and give them my full attention, which, you know, in in one sense is a good thing, but is also kind of limiting because a lot of people don't have that limitation and just expect to be able to chat with you whilst doing half a dozen other things at the same time. The other thing is that When it comes to things like dealing with um, conflict, I find that very hard. I can't really process what's going on and my own very intense emotions fast enough to keep up with what's going on. So in conflict situations, I tend to just sort of freeze up. I can't really say or do much of anything. And it's only really after the situation is over that I can look back, look back on it and think, good grief. What, what just happened? Mm. Uh, you know, what was going on there? I can sort of replay it and figure out what just happened. But actually,
0: in the moment, I don't really have any space for that. And just, just very quickly. I mean, very fascinating. Is So in those situations of conflict, do you uh, do you consciously prioritise of being aware of one thing over the other i mean like some people might be like coming up with what they're going to say next some people might be prioritizing sensing what they're feeling in their body some people might be prioritizing watching the clock on the wall you know does, does that come up consciously or no. And
1: yeah. I, I'm, I'm smirking a little bit because the, what you just said about tuning into what's going on in the body, that's, that's like the number one suggestion that I encounter. For, well, here's how you deal with emotionally charged situations. You know, you have some percentage of your attention on what's going on in the body. Oh. Yeah. I, I have no capacity left over for that, that kind of advice. I've tried it many times and it just doesn't work do But, but you
0: say, I mean, there, I, I asked because you said, when I feel the intense emotions, you know, that's coming on in conflict situations. So that's a sort of retrospective understanding. Yeah. Okay. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I I can look back and unpick what happened Hmm. at at the time. It, it feels very much um, like there's a script to the situation that someone else has written and I'm just kind of following along with it. Um. So there was, there was an, an occasion quite recently actually where I, without getting into the details I'd gone into a conversation expecting it to be quite friendly and actually the other person was extremely hostile and just sort of started having it go at me straight away and I pretty much just did exactly what he said from beginning to end and and ended up leaving the room and didn't really get a word in edgeways because my whole brain was just kind of frozen mm. just like uh don't know what to do mm. so I was very much sort of Reacting on instinct and not in a particularly skillful way in retrospect, but mm. I didn't really have any options. You know it's, it's like you have a, a menu to choose from in a conversation, and there's no options on my menu. So it's like, uh, <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's, there's just nothing I can do here. Mm. So yeah, when, it, when it's really severe, there's, there's just nothing. Yeah. When it's a little bit gentler, when it's a difficult conversation that I'm going to have with somebody, and I know about it in advance and I've had time to prepare for it, then there's a bit more space. Uh, yeah, the the feeling in in the the previous example is very much of sort of contraction. You know, everything's yeah. contracted to the point that there's just no room to move at all. If I've been able to prepare a bit, and it's somebody I know, and there's a little bit more. Um, space in there then there'll be a bit more in terms of navigating and I might notice once or twice in a 15-minute conversation you know gosh my heart's going really fast I need to calm Mm. things down and be a bit careful but it'll be little glimpses of things like that and sort of Mm. still 98% of my attention is going into trying to listen and take in and understand what's being said to me and trying to say something vaguely intelligent back in reply
0: Right, right right yeah
1: so actually that's The flip side of this, that... On the one hand, trying to bring some technique to apply in the moment doesn't really work for me because things are so constrained. But one thing that very much has come out of the meditation practice is getting to know myself, becoming more, much more aware of what's going on in me, being able to look back actually and say, oh, you know, I recognize these things because I've seen milder versions of them under better circumstances. So I kind of understand what just happened. I couldn't use it at the time, but I can at least take that forward in the future And because I've spent a lot of time doing practices uh, like the jhanas, like Zen practice, which build a lot of um, equanimity, some of that has kind of ingrained itself to the point that I don't really need to switch it on consciously. I'm just a bit more of a calm, settled person than I used to be. Not, mm. not enormously, you know, <laughs> still mm. probably on the highly strung end of the spectrum. But if you'd known me 10 years ago, my goodness, there's a difference. Mm. So mm. some of that equanimity kind of seeps in over the, the long hours of practice. And that means that as I continue to practice, situations get a bit easier almost by themselves as a side effect of the practice rather than because I'm doing something deliberately when I'm meeting people, if that makes any but, sense. So like
0: the sort of starting point of your interaction with someone you're already like a little bit calmer and yeah your nervous system is more calm you know i see Mm. exactly yeah
1: Mm. So, yeah, you know, on on the one hand, um, specific techniques to bring into social interactions really haven't helped at all. But practice, on the other hand, has helped just enormously. It's made a massive difference. Mm. And I think that this was a point I particularly wanted to bring up in this conversation, because I would imagine that there are other people like me who've tried some of these techniques for just what's going on in your body and they just don't work at all Mm. but that doesn't mean the practice is a waste of time there's actually real value here it's just it might not come from the direction you expect it to it's more Mm. a sort of character trait that that builds up over time
0: yeah yeah that's so important isn't it yeah yeah so so would you say that's the sort of main um application i suppose of the meditation practice to dealing with relationships and difficult people that you found for
1: yourself? That's, that's certainly a key one. There's a couple mm. of others as well, actually. I was going back through your, your book the other night, and uh, there's that nice section at the end where you kind of summarize the various strategies that people mm. have talked about through the book. There were a few more, actually, that jumped out as well. Uh, one of them was titled something like Realizing When You Need Help from Others. And a really common thing among autistic people is we tend to really, really not like asking for help, to really want to be able to solve everything ourselves, to figure it out ourselves. And it's taken a long time and a lot of practice to realize that, no, actually, some of these things are not just a matter of trying a bit harder. There are just fundamentally things that I will never be better than mediocre at. And there are other people who are amazing at those things. And if we team up, then actually this whole enterprise is going to go far better than it would if I try to do it all myself. Yeah. So that's been really helpful. And of course that involves a certain amount of um, trust and being willing to open up to other people and to ask for help and to be able to say things like, you know what, I, I really need help in this situation. Um, but that really makes a difference.
0: Could you could you give a very brief like example of of when that's been helpful or what in what situation have you been able to? make Yeah,
1: it so it, it's another conflict one. Uh, so one of the things I'm dealing with at work at the moment, and
0: again without going into
1: details, but we have a, a sort of fairly um, hostile negotiation type situation going on. Mm. Uh, my group of people is trying to persuade another group of people to do something, and they really don't want to do it. And those discussions get quite charged and quite emotional. And again, I've, found, I've been in, I don't know, a dozen of these meetings now, and there comes a point where I start to feel that contraction again, and it gets harder and harder to speak. And there'll be times when I want to make points and say, no, but that's wrong because of this, or, or you know, to interject something. And I just can't, I just mm. can't get the words mm. out of them. And at first, that was very frustrating, and I was beating myself up. And I was like, okay, Matt, you're really going to have to learn to get better at these conflict situations and just say things. And I've tried, and I've really made no progress at all. What has worked, though, is so before any of these um, conflict type meetings. We'll have a pre-meet where we talk about these are the kinds of things that might come up. And we'll have a a wash up after the fact where we'll say, wasn't it interesting when so-and-so said this? The pre-meet and the wash up, those are the places where I I earn my pay basically. Mm. Because I've been observing people all the way through the interaction. I'm quite good now actually at reading people, especially if I don't have to try to interact with them Yeah. so I'll pick up quite a lot of detail and I'll also have done quite a lot of thinking about the issue that's being discussed. So I'll have various ideas and I can put those into the wider group when things are and it's just us and and not the other people involved. So there are opportunities for me to sort of work my ideas into the, the collective consciousness to, to get my opinions heard in the room, just not through saying them myself. Mm, so mm. being able to to sort of recognize that actually the wider team can really help me here and being willing to work with that rather than trying to force myself to say something in a really charged situation, yes, that's been a, a massive game changer for me. Mm. 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 Um, and then the other one that really jumped out from your book was the idea of seeing the Buddha nature in other people. You know, seeing... Uh, And that can mean all sorts of things. But in particular, for me, there's something about learning to recognize where people are coming from in what they're saying. And usually, most of the time, not always, but most of the time, people are coming from a good place. Mm. and because of various things like uh, another autism thing is sensory hypersensitivity so I'm very sensitive to sound and noise I'm quite touch phobic uh, the, the zen world lots of people like to hug and will insist on it and, and that's a really quite difficult experience it's quite mm. unpleasant for me and it's not just because I haven't come out of my shell yet No, the feeling of physical contact with strangers is really physically thoroughly unpleasant I really yeah. don't like it mm-hmm. but People in these situations are not forcing me to hug them <laughs> to torture me, right? They're doing it because it's a sign of warmth and affection, and they're people who very much enjoy that. And I think, well, you know, wouldn't it be nice to share this experience of physical contact? So they're coming from a good place, they're coming from a benevolent place. They don't really realize that what they're doing is having a very negative effect. And to the extent that I can remember, Hang on a minute. The intention here is positive, even if the outcome is quite difficult. Again, that really helps to get through some of these situations. Where it's like if I can, every now and again, remind myself: No, no, actually, you know, these these are not bad people. These are good people trying to do a nice thing. It's yeah. just I'm a bit different, and it doesn't quite work in that way for me. Yeah, yeah. That's been really helpful.
0: Right, right. It's like someone who has a laugh that reminds you so much of your. I don't know the uncle you hated when you were growing up and they they're just laughing genuinely but it somehow makes your teeth grate and you want to shout them punch them and it's just like that isn't it yeah exactly Mm -hmm. yeah so there's all these these wonderful techniques we can use and bring in to like helping us to understand and be present with people in, in how they are um and help us to smooth out you know allow those relationships to to be more functional or be more yeah. more more pleasant I suppose isn't it yeah,
1: and I must say you know one of the really big things I notice from the practice that i've done is how much more open I am now to uh, both people but also the world around me in general you know i 20 years ago, let's say, my my body was a vehicle for transporting my brain around, Mm -hmm. and I was pretty much in an isolated bubble, doing my own thing, thinking my own interesting thoughts, and I was kind of fine with that. On on some deep level, I really wanted a sense of belonging that I didn't have, Um, but I was very kind of cut off, very isolated, and of course, as you know, practice has a way of eroding all those kinds of boundaries and making things a bit porous. And 20 years ago, I would never have dreamed that I would be the kind of person who would be stopped in my tracks by the beauty of a sunrise or would just spend five minutes watching a river flow because isn't nature awesome? And I could never have imagined that I would be the kind of person who would be actively seeking out groups of people. Because actually, it's quite nice sometimes to be in groups of people, even with all the various drawbacks that come with that, mm. being able to open up a little bit more. I mean, it helps as well that because I've learned how to interact with people, I have skills now that I didn't have as a kid. Mm. Uh, and so it's, it is easier for me to get along with people now than it was. But just being, being willing to take that step to reach out sometimes has been really quite huge,
0: I think. Mm. and not just that it's like the willingness to share this stuff you know and you've put yourself you're stepping into the place of being a teacher and Mm -hmm. offering this stuff to people who who are also kind of like finding their way in things and and you, you know that that that's amazing
1: one of the the most lovely experiences actually is when I'm When i'm teaching a retreat something like that and i have interviews with the other people on the retreat um, before handing the run-up to the interviews i'll generally do some some zen practice i'll just sit i'll try to effectively sort of empty myself out as much as i can get rid Mm -hmm. of any preconceived ideas about what might happen and just try and be there as much as i can and then in those one-on-one interactions doesn't always happen but every now and again there'll be a kind of sense of connection Like this person I am actually meeting, we're actually Mm. talking—not just about something superficial, but there's there's really something going on in this in this moment, and um, that's that's something that enriches both sides. I think you know, when I first started teaching, I was very much looking at those interviews as the interview is the place where I tell things to the student, Mm. and it's it's become much more about the interview is the place where the student and I meet. And we have a conversation, and probably usually actually we both take something away from
0: that, yeah, yeah, the traditional image in Zen isn't it the the two arrows flying through midair meet point to point, yeah, and it's 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 like that direct but also extremely rare to have two arrows hit each other mid flight and to have two people sitting in a room who really see each other and meet yeah. face to face, isn't it, yeah. Mm-hmm. and I, I i mean i i could really we it's so fascinating we could speak for a lot longer but i also think that's a lovely place to finish in that that um that's really where this stuff can take us you know we are we do our practice we start to apply it and see where you know this us our, our stuff as it's arising we start to look at our relationships and, and deal with uh um difficult people and beautiful people and we come to this point where we can meet another person right here immediately. 100%. Just beautiful. Thank you so much for uh, all of your wisdom and experience and, and perspectives. Really, really fascinating. Thank you so much.
1: Oh, thanks so much for having me along. It's been really good, to, it's, uh, really good talking with you.
0: If you've enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review and a star rating on whatever platform you use. And do recommend it to others because we all meet difficult people and each of those meetings presents an opportunity for learning and growth. I also have a downloadable video course in how to deal with difficult people. Head over to my website for more information, markwestmaquette.co.uk. Thanks for listening.